Welcome to Learning with Lisa, Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast with Lisa Navarra, award-winning educator, consultant, behavior specialist, author, and parent. This podcast provides support for school leaders, educators, and parents. We share and discuss evidence-based resources that are embedded in social and emotional learning to meet the needs of students who struggle focusing and learning. Teachers and parents find information and strategies to improve students' academic, behavioral, and social-emotional performance. It's time to turn kids from I can't into I can. Welcome to Student Success Beyond Expectations. Today I bring to you Dr. Joe Volpe. Dr. Volpe and I met a number of years ago when I first saw one of his advertisements for a free workshop on executive functioning and self-regulation. And I was just really at that point in time beginning to learn the depth of what ADHD is, what executive functioning is, and its impact on children. When I went to Dr. Volpe's workshop, what synergy his information and his delivery of that information had with my philosophy of education and what children need inside and outside of the school system as an educator. You know, I'm an educator, not a psychologist, but our worlds can merge and intertwine with one another. And today, Dr. Volpe is going to be talking to you about how ADHD is so underestimated. As a matter of fact, I think we both agree that not only is it underestimated, but it's really misunderstood. It's underestimated in the impacts that it can have on children's lives, but it doesn't start there and end there, but it can, can continue into the adult life of that once upon child. And so Dr. Volpe, thank you so much for bringing your 25 years plus experience from school psychology. You're a clinical psychologist and you're an adjunct professor imparting your knowledge and your experience to the students who are going to help make a difference and impact on our uh, children and adults and teens today. So welcome. Thank you for the invitation. I am very glad to be here with you. Can you talk to us about how you think and why you think ADHD is underestimated? In what way? What do you mean by that? I think historically, people have focused on the paying attention part and the hyperactivity part, in part because of the diagnostic criteria and the name. It's gotten a bad rap in part because the label that people use to talk about it, ADHD, is, as it turns out, very misleading. Uh, a lot of the research that's come out over the years, uh, Russell Barkley being a major uh, proponent of, of so many important data sets uh, of late and such a prolific researcher, he and uh, others have talked about how ADHD and the attention hyperactivity part really don't represent what we see in the population. In fact, we know it's a, neuro a neurodevelopmental disorder and we know it causes problems with, with self-control. But more importantly, a better way may be to look at it as a problem with executive functions. And if we can understand what executive skills are, we have a better handle on how to assist people with ADHD. 
So it fundamentally, it changes the whole, really the way we will conceptualize and intervene if we see this as a, a delay in executive skills. Exactly. And so good tip for educators would be, or even parents, is if you have a child who's eight, but maybe they're behaving more like a five-year-old, we need to address those skills on that level and not just stick to, well, lack of self-control, it doesn't self-regulate. So what am I supposed to do? I've got to teach, I've got to get to this curriculum. And so when you have educators who just really honestly don't know any better because it's not in our curriculum. I take student teachers now and executive functioning is not the core of their knowledge because it's just not being taught. But ADHD, as mainstream as it sounds, is exactly how they're being taught. So Dr. Bope, how would you even approach maybe a, a new teacher and an experienced teacher in just beginning to see the difference between, we know you've heard that it's distractibility and its ability to self-control and self-regulate or to be able to focus. How do you deepen their knowledge so that way we could become more educated ourselves and provide better instruction? Okay, so I think all interventions, wherever they may be, it, whether they be in the school, in the classroom, uh, or even at homes, or in a clinical setting, uh, they start with education about this condition. And this is probably the most important thing. Um, over the years, I have talked to teachers uh, about kids with who've struggled with ADHD. Um, when I first started doing my workshops, probably in the mid 90s, um, I would go out and I would say pretty much what was out there and what we knew and what the DSM would tell us, our diagnostic manual, that you're going to see kids in your classroom who can't pay attention, who may be hyperactive and are going to be very impulsive. And I used to focus on those three things. We would say it was this, the holy trinity of ADHD. It was these three parts. And when I would talk to teachers about what to do, I would focus on those things individually. We would talk about strategies and, and, and ways to you know, put kids in the front of the room to minimize distractions, give them a lot of feedback, maybe do some kind of star charts or behavior programs, um, work and coordinate with some kind of homeschool note systems so that parents and teachers could be on the loop. Now realize back then we didn't have portals like we do now where there would be a you know, pretty well direct line of communication between teachers and parents. So I would, I would always focus on the education part. But now here's the thing that I'm finding now today. Even colleagues that I have, psychologists, other mental health uh, workers, may not really fundamentally appreciate the executive functioning part of ADHD. And that's unfortunate. So I, I certainly feel for teachers because they have kids that they know have these needs, but even the parents sometimes will go for help and they're presumably getting help from a, someone who knows something about ADHD. Oftentimes I'll ask them, did, were executive functions ever evaluated or measured or, or discussed? And a lot of times they'll say, no. Executive measures, executive functions, what are those? Right. So that's the starting place. And that's, and that's what the parents, so I will discuss executive skills with teachers whenever I can, whenever I can bring it up at CSE meetings or whenever there's questions about what, what is this all about? What are they and how do we help? 
what are they and how do we help? I believe the first thing that we need to do is understand that we need as educators to understand the psychology of these children. And the psychologists in the buildings need to understand us educators. So that way we can both collaborate on a, on a way that works in both of our worlds. Educators will know what questions to ask that are meaningful for them. And psychologists will be able to deliver it in a way that's not clinical, but in a way that they could be understood and also realistically applicable in the classroom. So Dr. Bope, let's talk about what executive functioning is. Can you explain that to our listeners, please? Sure, yeah. So what we need to appreciate here is that humans uniquely have this very well-developed executive brain. Uh, and this brain is evolving and it's developing right through our late 20s. And it's a very important part of, you know, who we are in terms of how we ultimately interact with our world. Now, you may see behaviors like, um, you know, not listening to what's being said, being distracted or getting out of one's seat and speaking excessively and maybe having a hard time waiting to, to you know, to postpone gratification, um, maybe showing a lot of emotion. You may see all of these things out in, in the world, you know, kids getting up, acting as if they're driven by a motor, uh, talking more, you know, um, and, and emoting more <laughs> and behaving more than other kids. But you got to ask yourself, what is that? And so oftentimes those are things that on the surface may be described as symptoms of ADHD or some behavioral issue. But we now know those are outward projections of a very under of an underlying complex problem that is part of psychological and neuropsychological develop development. So these mental abilities or these brain functions that that give really essentially um, uh, produce those behaviors are all rooted in what we call executive functions, and they're called executive because they act in a way that organizes the rest of the brain to accomplish goals and plans. So they're about being able to regulate our own behavior, keep an eye on the future and accomplish goals. And these networks are critical because these networks are those that are implicated in ADHD. Um, and when we see difficulties in functioning in the classroom, these various networks allow a, a child to focus, allow them to stay on task allow them to move and to think efficiently, allow them to learn novel information, to choose what's important to act on and what's not important. And so it's important to understand executive functions at their very core are what guide us from childhood through adulthood so that we ultimately can function and interact and accomplish and be productive. That's absolutely right. And during that process of us understanding these children then what it also allows us to do is raise their self-awareness. Okay, take a deep breath. Your brain got distracted. What is it that you're supposed to be doing right now? They could tell you, which means they're processing it. If they're saying it, most likely they're visualizing it. If they're visualizing it, they're more likely to then perform whatever task that should be their priority at, their mo at that moment. And so by us understanding, we can raise their self-awareness of what's in their best interest to accomplish those goals. And I think essentially that's kind of what you're saying. Well, yeah, actually it's a really good point you bring up about self-awareness. That's, 
you know, um, Barclay in, in his latest work, and probably the last 15 years, uh, maybe even a little more, he's gone through different transformations of, of analyzing all of the data out there. Um, and his latest conclusions are just so spot on. So for many years, he's talked about this executive brain and these executive skills as really being like a Swiss army knife. It has, it, it allows one to do so many different things. And really, when we talk about these seven pieces that make up our executive brain, one of those key things to start is self-awareness. In fact, when you look at executive functions, really self-control begins knowing what you're thinking, what you're saying, and what you're doing. And, and it's a very important thing. Now, for most of us, it becomes very automated. Um, you know, we, we, you know, when something happens, we're kind of on autopilot, you know, but we do know that if we can't monitor our actions, uh, we will not be able to continue to, to work toward our goals. And if we're not paying attention to what we're saying and what we're thinking and what we're doing and our planning, this is what, this is what takes us off course. And this is one area where people who struggle with executive functions really feel the impact. They say out in the field, it's, it's the world kicks back. <laughs> you could get away with this when you're maybe in element, you know, preschool, you know, but once you get into elementary school and there are greater demands, there are things that you're going to need to do. That executive brain now needs to start. It need, you know, you need to be able to pay attention to what you're doing uh, and, and make course corrections along the way. And that's where we'll see children struggling, especially right. if they in fact are at the extreme areas of delay what we ultimately may diagnose as ADHD. Right, and that's what Dr. Barkley says, is that 50 to 70% of children are rejected by second grade by at least one close friend. And it's not even because of their forgetfulness. Uh, it's really because of their emotional outbursts because they can be very, like, you know, you know what I'm talking about out there. I'm talking about when there's no filter and they don't mean to hurt anybody's feeling, but it's the emotional part of them that people just can't really handle. So by seven years old, 50 to 70% of children are being rejected. So it's a disservice in my opinion to not teach, explicitly teach children how to raise your self-awareness of what they're doing at the time that they're doing it. We have these expectations, and I want you to comment on this. We have these expectations of, okay, you know what? Every day you make the same mistake, right? How many of us have had a student or a child, they make the same mistake every day. And when you talk with them, what should you have done? What will you do next time? They could tell you exactly what they're supposed to do. And sometimes you really even feel the remorse and, and, and how they are just so upset. But next day, same thing happened. Can you talk to us about that process, what's happening and what also would be a support for them? So let, let's consider one, another one of the core executive skills, inhibition or self-restraint. You couple this up with awareness. First, we have awareness, which starts when we're very, very young. But as, as we develop and as the brain develops, there's an expectation, at least from a neurodevelopmental standpoint, that the individual will start to develop self-restraint. They'll be able to put a pause between what's happening in the environment and their response. Um, and that's a critical pause because that gives a child time to think before they act. <laughs> so 
this is important because this has a lot to do with interventions. So a child who may have a problem controlling their impulses oftentimes may be looked at as being immature or having a very difficult time. Maybe it's a parenting issue, which unfortunately many people have attributed their behavioral restraint issues to behave parenting, which in most cases, especially in ADHD is not the issue, although that can make it worse. That's not the cause, especially for those who are you know, clinically you know, impaired with, with a condition we, again, ultimately may diagnose. But this ability to inhibit impulses is problematic. This means that that brain is making this child think too much. And that may be that a lot of those thoughts going through their head, and they'll tell you, there's just too many thoughts coming through their head, behave too much, moving too much, acting too much, getting out of their seat, fidgeting, all these other things you may say. But very importantly, you just mentioned it, emote too much. Imp the difficulty with emotional uh, uh, impulsivity is a significant one. And you hit the nail on the head. Social interactions are the, one of the biggest casualties of the expression of impulsive emotion. You and I may be able to sit, take a deep breath, bite our tongue, count to 10, you know, and imagine in our mind a better response. If you have difficulties with your executive functions, you will not think, you will not visualize, you will just react. And we do know that there are two red flags that we see, and I, we've seen it in our ADHD clinic, preschoolers. These are red flags that indicate we must intervene earlier. They are either A, thrown out of preschool uh, programs, and the more, and I've had, we've had many kids literally ask to leave their preschool programs. That's one red flag. The other is they are shunned by their peers. And social rejection is a very common consequence. You know, kids are okay if they show a lot of positive emotion. But if you cannot inhibit negative emotion, those are the ones that are very destructive to relationships. And so getting to that before it happens is critical. Getting a read on a child's you know, mood, perhaps. What kind of day they're having. If, they're, if they come into class and they don't have their ditto, you know, we expect that. But if we go ahead and make them stand up and recite why they don't have their ditto, you know, this is clearly going to make things get much worse. And there, there, you know, to talk to talk about the emotions, especially with preschool, giving them the words, the labels, so they can express mm -hmm. how they're feeling, raising that self-awareness at an early age, and and then opening up that that line of communication to build those skills. Correct, correct. Voc a vocabulary would be great. Now, we, we have a couple of complications here because you know if we think more in terms of other executive functions. You know, working memory is another very important one that evolves. And as Let's children get, that. yeah, working memory as they, as they get older, this means that we have like this GPS device wired into our executive brain that allows us to call up images of the past, what we call hindsight. And we can think about what would be a good pathway to get that goal, you know, to see the future. That's called foresight. And this working memory literally is, is this GPS that allows kids to be able to sort of see what they want to accomplish and perhaps verbally get there. And so um, this is really important because a lot of times kids have a hard time visualizing 
what the consequence may be, what's coming down the road for them if they do the right work. You know, they don't see in their mind like other kids, you know, a disappointed parent when they get home or an angry parent, you know, saying, what, what happened? Why did you get in trouble today? Um, these are these are images that we develop very early on. And ultimately, they help guide a lot of our action. The other thing with working memory is the ability to hold information in our head, including instructions, what to do. And so a lot of times information is coming at kids too fast. And so if it's not written down, for example, if it's not in big, you know, color letters, it, you know, it's not going to be paid attention to. And so even starting their day may be difficult because they don't even know where to start because they forgot to bring in, you know, their, their work from home, their ditto, and they go off task. Some of these kids come in, Lisa, they come in from home. And they're already stressed because while they were getting dressed, they saw their, you know, their parents' phone on the desk and they went over and started playing with that. And the next thing you know, they forgot what they were doing. And then, you know, a half hour later, they're getting yelled at for not being ready to leave for, for school yet. And they already come in already at risk. And then they sit down and they're asked to pull out their ditto. And they didn't hear that direction. They were distracted by something the day before. They never got the... They, they lost the ditto, maybe they misplaced right. it. And so, you know, again, they're governed by what's in their environment. They're not thinking about the eye on the prize of, of what behavior I need. So, so now you've got distractibility and, and the inhibition issues. You've got the working memory issues and you've got this awareness or lack thereof that what I'm doing is not gonna get me the goal or the consequences. Right. So, and so that, now- those, are, those are critical. Critical, absolutely. So this working memory, every single educator, related service provider should be so well-versed in what it is because instruction would be so much more effective because what it would be is more supportive of an environment because we would know what to explicitly teach and then what details to provide to be able to have those children execute the skill at the time. So like you're saying, when there's a child who arrives into school, maybe they even forget to get their breakfast. And every day they come in and breakfast is almost over. And then they're like, I forgot my breakfast, but we already did attendance. The announcements have gone on and it's like, but every day. But like Dr. Volpe is saying, they don't have the capacity or the ability to be able to draw upon their mental images of what has happened in the past to support them at this moment. So that's the one part, because you've got the visual part of the working memory, and then you've got the self-talk, the verbal part. And so if, they, if they're not telling themselves, okay, walk into the building, get breakfast, get breakfast, get breakfast, and they're sitting down and they're just probably doing not very much. You know, maybe they're thinking about why they got in trouble because they didn't get dressed and they just thought, oh, cool, there's the phone, let me use it, right? And it's innocent and they get in their own way. And that's the frustrating part because they do get in their own way and they're not trying to hurt anybody or frustrate anybody, although it can be because there's life in their schedules and there's responsibilities and priorities. So my next question really to you is let's talk about the heart of some of these kids, right? Mm. I, I mean, talk to us about maybe the disappointment that you've seen these children have within themselves or the struggle that they've had to be able yeah. to change what they know is not working for them. Talk to yeah. us about this heart. 
Yeah. So I find that a lot of kids, even starting really young, they, they, they'll say that like they feel the whole world is kind of against them. Um, teachers sometimes, you know, they feel a lot of pressure from their teachers. Um, some teachers, you know, may not be as, as compassionate. Uh, we've, we've tried to emphasize that they, you know, or they, or they, the way that the teacher may be redirecting that child may be perceived as, you know, um, you know, frustration and anger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that could be upsetting. You know, I, I want to just to get back to one other thing. You what? know, one of the things that I, I try to do with teachers, I try to say, have you ever walked into a room and forgot why you were there? Hey. Picture ADHD is like that times a hundred mm -hmm. every day. Every day. All so day. yeah. So you know, so think about what how frustrating that must be for that child. Now add to that the problems they have with time, time management, organization. We say that, you know, there's time blindness with ADHD. You know, they're kind of in the now, not anticipating the future. In fact, we oftentimes will say the if you want to talk about any kind of paying attention, it's paying attention to the future. What's they're in the now and what's coming down the road is not as relevant because they're looking at what's right in front of them, not what's coming down the road. So when they come into that classroom, there's a lot of expectations placed on them. So they will feel oftentimes as if everybody's against them. You know, then if, if sometimes we'll, we'll go, you know, when the child goes home, then the parent, you know, don't forget about 40% of parents of kids with attention deficit also have ADHD. So, right. you know, if they don't go home and feel that support and those parents oftentimes are feeling overwhelmed themselves, especially if they're other siblings and add to that, the complication of a quarantine where for many months they were teaching right. kids who had a hard time with it. Oh. So these, these kids ultimately, um, you know, have a whole lot of emotional, uh, emotional experience going on. Um, and one of the things, one of the challenges that we have is, is in education as, as well as, you know, as for me clinically assisting parents and families is to really build their education about what the child is going through by using that example. You walk into a room, you don't remember why you're there. Um, and you have demands being placed on you, <clears throat> but you're trying to find this, the, the wherewithal to do it. And the more this demand gets placed, at times, many kids just shut down. Right. Many will, more, many will shut down. And the more that they try, now here's, here's for like what has been so helpful in the classroom. The more that these kids try to remember independently what they're supposed to be doing, what happens? Same thing with us. Time constraint. We got to go. We got to get. But now what happens? You can't think. You can't think clearly. You can't remember even more than you couldn't think before you felt stressed. And this is why... We need to provide children the action skills at the time that they need them. Do they need to launch? Do they need to focus? Do they need to build that, that, that working memory with a self-talk tool? Do they need to have a positive perception? Because they're thinking already, I can't do it. I've already failed. And yes, they remember their failures. And I believe they remember their failures more than what they're supposed to be doing to meet a happy goal. Right? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So those yeah. are things that we could be doing. Now, you know, there are some educators out there who says, well, I don't like rewards and, you know, behavior modification. And I'm, I, for me, I feel like if we give students what they need in terms of supporting that executive functioning, 
it really takes a life of its own in the classroom. It really allows for a great behavior management, great communication, and better learning. But there are times when children need more. So they might need that specific visual and then that extrinsic motivator that they can work toward and then get. So can you talk to us about that? So let's talk about the, so we've already said that a child who may be struggling with ADHD or executive functioning issues, their life is, is, is packed with a lot of frustration and a lot of anger inducing events and, and tr triggers. Um, a lot of things out there provoke emotion. It could be the kid cutting in front of them or making fun of them. It could be the, you know, the, the frustration of having their teacher upset with them because they didn't hand material in. Um, now let's add to this another executive function because this is really answers exactly what you bring up. Emotional self-control. Um, some call it emotional intelligence, but really this is about emotional self-control. And this is a critical one because it's connected directly to self-motivation. So if the child is having a hard time regulating their emotion or can't create that positive emotion, they're not gonna feel the motivation. So they're connected. <laughs> and that's important because in fact, they're wired together. So if we expect a child to do things, we have to think in terms of what their emotional function is. And before we ask them to do things, are they in the right space? You know, when you talk about behavior modification, especially in classrooms, we talk about, and you're right, a lot of times we'll hear, well, why do I have to give rewards? Isn't that something they should be able to do on their own? And I will tell you that there's a category of kids out there who will not do things on their own. They are not self-motivated. It's not because they choose. It's because those things just don't, they don't stimulate them. They don't float their boat. They, because of their chemistry, because of the neuroanatomy, because of these issues with executive skills being delayed, all of these skills that we're talking about have been shown to be about 30% delayed in kids clinically diagnosed with ADHD. So these are really significant executive skills that are necessary for function. So they shut down. So what do we do? We do behavior modification. Behavior modification was used many, for many, many years. Um, and it was essentially to build motivation by placing external things in the environment so that we can get more behavior. And working toward those consequences, especially rewarding ones, was supposed to be the goal. Now, as we grow, we, we learn to delay any kind of reward. I don't, you know, if I'm doing something, I don't need a pat on the back every time I, you know, I write a sentence or I respond to an email. The ability to visualize is very important. <laughs> well, I, well, think about it, you know, so yeah. the ability to be able to internalize that goal that I am working toward, that's, that comes as our brains get developed. I mean, think about it. People go on, they try to get into college, they go to graduate school. That reward doesn't come for a really long time. Mm -hmm. Long time. But, but even adults with attention deficit, we're talking about, you know, 75 to 80% of those who come out of high school carry symptoms into their adulthood. They, they, they too have a hard time with that delay in that reward. So let's, uh, we have to understand this brain doesn't work like other brains. It needs a lot of reward. It needs a lot of feedback. It needs a lot of bells and whistles. There's gonna be a need for a lot of reminders, 
Don't expect them to remember things. Post them on the board. Post them on the, on the desk. It's going to be a world of physical reminders, bells, whistles, post-it notes, calendars, visual cues. And, and that's ultimately how we start to build in little pieces motivation for that child because they can then in little pieces get these rewards and ultimately they will learn that gratification takes some work and cooperation and as they develop they will start to have those skills they will also develop as that brain emerges and develops that executive brain their foresight will also start to develop we do see improvement in many as the executive brain is developing like i said earlier we know this brain is developing in all of us until our late 20s. But there, if we look at a bell distribution, we understand there are people who will lag on that, on that lower end of these executive skills, and they will be impacted across the board in all of these areas. And at the least and the most impaired are those that we may ultimately diagnose with ADHD. It's important to understand that these things are on a continuum and we're in a great spot as educators to really build an environment, essentially build this, this scaffold to support them in the classroom, to help them when they're feeling very frustrated. We also have to learn how to read that. And That's part right. of learning how to read it is by understanding them and by understanding, understanding them. the situation. Yeah. Understand them. And I want to bring it back to when you were saying the motivation, because we all have seen when we've helped children do things and they're happy, they're great, you know, at the end. But what happens when a child really feels like he or she did it on his own and we're just there to guide them? That light bulb goes off, it can light up the sky, it's that aha moment that they will remember. And so when we give them that opportunity for success, through those types of strategies, adding those visuals that you were suggesting, allow them the platform to meet with success. Now what happens? They begin to believe in themselves. When they believe in themselves, that's the core of, I'm gonna remember that. I can do this again. Not just I can and I will, it's I can and I will because I will look at my post-it. I will remember my visual and my strategy. Then what do you have? Now you have a child who, ready, disciples of Barclay, are performance-based. So we've got motivation and we've got performance. And you know, Dr. Barclay is all over the fact that so many people think that these kids are not motivated. They know what they want in the end, but they need to be explicitly taught how. And if they're not taught explicitly how it's supported along the way, then they cannot perform. So talk to us about what performance is, because it's a very, very confusing thing for adults to understand when they don't, when they are not really aware of what performance is, because in our world, you're either motivated or you're not. Yeah, I mean, the one of our goals for, for our kids is to create self-reliant, self-sufficient navigators of the world. And when we think about what this means, this means that we have an obligation to, to support them and help them to believe in themselves. That's the, it, the only way we're ultimately gonna get the right results, the results that we want to help them find success. So 
it really is the environment around them. Just to use, as you mentioned Barkley again, and, and certainly we're both big fans of his. Um, you know, he talks about us as almost, and parents, as being shepherds. <laughs> and the he shepherds- did. I heard that one too. I, I love the metaphor because <laughs> yeah. a lot of times when parents have come in from, to me over the years, you know, they've come in, there's a lot of anger and disappointment. They've had a lot of negative interactions with the educators who've tried to help their child. And now the child is in a place where they're not getting any product. They're not getting any performance. You know, performance is something that we get. Product is something we get when we can get something out of the world. But a lot of these kids have come in, you know, by the time they come into our clinic, they have had a lot of negative experience, a lot of negative encounters. They've tried to move them from school to school. Um, we've seen a lot move to parochial settings, thinking that that would be better. Maybe they get more support in a different type of, of education. Um, and oftentimes they end up coming back um, yeah. because they, they need the support services that we offer in, in public schools. Um, you know, so trying to hone in on that, on that you know, as a, as a shepherd would, <laughs> and we're helping the parent, you know, and again, I think the important thing is a lot of the parents are also dealing with their own frustration, you know, and this, the, the model really says that the, the responsibility that we try to teach parents that they have is they're not the engineers, they're not the ones that made you know, that make this child how they are. We can't go back and reorganize them, you know? And, and honestly, when we ultimately make the diagnosis and work with the parents, we have to help them to realize that this child is a product of a whole lot of things. Um, and, and what we wanna do is we wanna harness, harness their positive energy. We wanna help develop talent. We wanna really try to provide an environment around them where they feel valued and they feel that what they do is very important and that we're dedicated to helping them. And then, and one of the, this is where I end up getting involved in my clinical hat, bridging the gap between the home and the school situation. Yes. And that means developing a plan where we're interacting with teachers in the school, working with the school psychologists and the people who are support for that child and really trying to focus on one thing, success. That means finding the support, the accommodations, the classroom um, environment and classroom setting, the way that child is being instructed. So again, we're, we essentially all serve as shepherds, as we heard these sheep. <laughs> and, and, you know, we got to realize that they're, they're sheep, they're not cats. <laughs> so, and, and they wander and they, and, you know, and, and we have a, a responsibility to try to move them along. Great example. And I recently heard this in a workshop. Uh, it was a, a, some interview that Barkley gave. And he talked about Michael Phelps, the Olympic swimmer. He was very fortunate. His mother, as it turns out, was a principal of a school where he was. <laughs> um, he also came from a very athletic family. But when he was, she's actually an assistant principal. And basically what she did when, when Michael was in school having difficulty, she made sure he had his behaviors addressed in terms of his concentration issues. She had tutors for him. She had him involved in sports because he was so athletic, as we know. She had built a, an environment. She gave him strategies to help with his emotions because he was very, very reactive, especially he had a very bad temper. She also, in his instruction, made sure that he got like little check-ins every 15, 20 minutes throughout his day with his, with his teachers so that he was getting, they were giving him feedback on a regular basis. They weren't leaving it up to him to sort of sum up how he's doing because self-awareness is a difficult area. He may not know when he's going down the wrong path. 
So he would need redirection with, with the external support of his, and support of, his, of the educators. And in this case, fortunately, his mother being an administrator, um, she was able to help orchestrate that. But the point is this, the success was because it was all of these people shepherding, the, shepherding this child along the way. And that's a critical, it, we underestimate our role as educators. Yes, you know, and, absolutely. and that's important. We do. And I think a lot of people underestimate our role as educators. And that's really part of this podcast because uh, it's all about providing information, inspiration, and resources in a real practical way. It's another platform to merge realistic information and interventions to help all of you listeners out there because we are underestimated. And I kind of think that we're underrepresented because if we weren't, then I think colleges would be looking at our field and our profession a whole lot different. And that's on my radar because I think that we really need to be working multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary in ways that are much more meaningful. And if you're interested in what that means, then you would want to check out my podcast with Dr. Orly Calderon, because that's what a lot of her research has supported and how it impacts children with ADHD. You see, what we do really does matter. And it doesn't matter if we've got the best lesson plans or, or the best session ever planned for our clients or our students. What matters the most, I believe, is that one children believe that we care. They feel that we either understand or if we really don't get it, they really feel like we care enough to try and understand. They respect that. And the other thing is that we provide them the skills in how to learn. And really that's what Dr. Bope is talking with everything right now. Understanding what this thing called executive functioning is, the working memory, these visuals, understanding that students and children, they need to be able to perform. It's not a matter of being motivated or not motivated. It's understanding who they are and maybe even who they want to be. You know, I have a question for you. Imagine that Dr. Lope, I've got a question for you. So, so have you seen children make real progress where they kind of awaken and they're like, oh, I kind of get it now. This is what I do, or this is what I've done, but this is what works for me. And you've seen them practice it and meet with success. Have you seen, can you talk toward that? Yeah, I, I always use you know my own um, experiences in working with ADHD over the years as you know one of the reasons why I ultimately began uh, and, and specialized in this area is because it was one of the areas that is so incredibly treatable. Um, once a child is professionally evaluated and diagnosed, um, so much improvement can come. And, I, and again, I, I think it's in part, I have found it to be, for me personally, an incredibly rewarding area to specialize in. And again, with working with children, teenagers, and adults, um, many of the ADHD clientele I have had have come so far. Now realize one thing, it is a combination of treatments, Lisa. And I know when you talk about medication as part of the, the strategy, you know, it's controversial medicating children, but the reality is this. 
we have something that has been shown to stabilize executive skills in addition to the behavioral strategies that we use. And there will be some individuals who will need to you know, supplement their interventions by having a part of that, including medication and the behavior modification, perhaps an IEP. These are all the, the, the part of the scaffolding of the intervention that we need. But there are evidence-based interventions that work. And so, again, I would quote Barclay one more time. ADHD is like the diabetes of psychiatry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's inc- it, it, it's, it is lifelong, but it's treatable. It's manageable. And you can get very positive results. And, and ultimately, and I can tell you, you know, from my own experiences, having had kids come depressed, really depressed, like suicidal, depressed because ADHD, for example, does not occur by itself. Over 80% of the time we're diagnosing at least one other condition, oftentimes depression, anxiety, um, uh, oppositionalism. And once we understand what we're treating, identify the core executive skills that we need to address, we can then map out an intervention plan that can literally map to those specific skills move the child forward in their lives, in their classes, with their peers, with their families. And as a result, start to see some of the positive results for a change. And half the battle is getting them into treatment, (laughs) getting them in and getting seen by people who really understand the condition. And if we do that, that's half the battle. It really is. You'll be so surprised when you you have, yes. I mean, if you talk with your your kids, whatever hat you wear, I had one story even last year, I'll never forget. First day of school, I'm stupid. What do you mean you're stupid? Well, that's what my cousin said, and yeah, I am. And you know, he, he had ADHD and he was on the spectrum. He's tossing his pencil all the time. And then, you know, a couple months later, asking him, so how do you feel? A- after reading his story, I was benchmarking him and he goes, and I don't use this word smart. That's a whole nother whole nother thing I effective use of phrase is not putting a judgment on somebody but he said I I feel smart I said well why because I can read I'm using my strategies and what he was saying is I feel in control you know and and yes and really ADHD is the most treatable ready for this people mental health condition out there because ADHD is considered to be a mental health condition and a lot of people don't understand that they don't know that because it's just ADHD. <laughs> right? That's right. You go to Starbucks, get some coffee, you'll wake up. That's what the adults used to hear. When I started practicing, I started specializing in adults first. I went the other way around. Okay. <laughs> I started working with adults. Yeah. And then I, I and then ultimately started to fill the practice with evaluating kids right through preschool up. And um, the reality is a lot of Unfortunately, there's still a lot of myths out there. For example, that that laziness, it's a lack of discipline, the parents are too enabling and this, but that means that you don't understand the condition if that's why you're blaming the problems that the child is experiencing. Now, that may be in small percentage, some of the things that people see that may make things worse. But if it is the condition that let's say we call ADHD, that we, we need to know. We're looking at a neurodevelopmental condition. Yes. This is something that's passed on in eight, over 80% of the time through genetics. Um, it's an incredibly inherited condition. It is the way the neuroanatomy and the neural systems have developed. 
that gives rise to gives rise to the executive functions. And then, of course, we have the topography, the behaviors we see, the outward manifestations that that are caused by delays in these neural systems. And if we sit and we say, oh, it's because of parents, it's because of lack of discipline, they're just lazy, then we're missing the boat. We are missing the boat on these kids and ultimately these adults who struggle. Now, I, I also want to mention, not all, about half, may also have a comorbid learning disability. So not only anxiety, depression, line up with ADHD, oftentimes we will see that about half the time, a learning, a specific learning disability, perhaps in reading, math, uh, writing, dysgraphia, very common. So that's where, you know, more formal testing may be necessary. Um, and sometimes we have to move forward if we see evidence of that. Um, but a lot of times the checklist that teachers get to fill out, that's very valuable information. Those rating scales give us some indication that, that are very ecologically valid and how that child is performing on things like distractibility, sticking to task, emotional management, all those things we talked about before in the classroom. Very, very important uh, data that could be used not only for diagnoses, but also for interventions uh, to I see if the interventions work. I think service providers outside of schools, including pediatricians, should be speaking with educators, with that classroom teacher. Doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be too yeah. overwhelming, but I think it's important to have a conversation because that's where there's a true understanding of what's being seen in the classroom. And that's not happening yet because that's on my radar too, because it really is important that we communicate and parents out there, make sure that your pediatricians are aware of what your, your child's teacher or teachers and related service providers are seeing. How many times have I gotten a report to sign, but not the speech teacher or the occupational therapist? Everybody should be getting these same reports. So that way they are getting a snapshot of how the child is performing in different environments in the class, in school. And you know something that also includes special areas such as physical education, art, music. It's important. It's something where your child is supposed to be learning and performing and it's important to get that information to that doctor and clinician as well. So Dr. Volpe, before we let you go today, what kind of either advice, or what would you say to one, children with ADHD who are suffering, and two, the educators who teach these children have them in their classroom? Hmm. I, I would say this, I think that number one, you have to remain compassionate. Um, and what does that mean? It means a certain level of forgiveness. And for the individuals who have ADHD, especially those in, as they're a bit older, the younger children, they need others around them to remain compassionate. They need others around them to identify their strengths, their talents, their aptitudes. Um, but if, if we can get to that and build them up and focus on some of their talents and strengths, and I will say with regard to, I know the ADHD clientele that you see out there and the ones I know I've treated, part of that is some of the gifts that they have as well. Um, they're, they're, sometimes that lack of inhibition could be very valuable. Many of the clientele that I've treated, um, yes, they're bored when it comes to school and, and yet they're gifted in art and music and all kinds of acting and <laughs> all kinds of other areas. Um, I, I, I've seen those gifts. Um, 
you know, the schools are sometimes their Achilles heel. We've got to find those strengths and those talents, and we've got to really build on those. We've got to make sure that that child realizes that this, these issues that they struggle with, these executive skills that they struggle with, this self-control that they struggle with, is just one part of them. That we have so many other parts of them and their personality that are incredibly valuable. And we can do things to help them show that part of their personality. Maybe we're connecting them you know, with various organizations. You know, we look at role models like a Michael Phelps, you know, or Adam Levine, you know, a musician, um, or Justin Timberlake, you know, all of these yeah. athletes, Terry Bradshaw, I mean, you know, Simone Biles. I mean, there are tons of them right. who have self-identified with ADHD and they have nurtured their talent. And, and also building again, a, this system in place so that they can move forward creating you know, opportunities where we know exercise works, getting them moving. We know getting them to get in certain habits could be very valuable to them. But again, creating a path that reinforces their strengths, not punishes them for these executive skill deficits. That's our mission in working with them productively. Great. Would you come back and visit us again? There's so much information that you have and we could take our conversations together in so many different directions that I really think will heighten people's awareness of what ADHD and, and how best that we can support these individuals. Would you come back again? Anytime, anywhere when it comes to ADHD, I'm there. As Even on the tell, preface I... of my book. I wrote an awesome preface on one of my books and, and Barclay right. has a quote too. <laughs> uh, that's just cool. That's just cool, isn't it? <laughs> I yeah. agree. So listeners out there, parents, educators, hopefully administrators too, we are hoping that you heard this episode, that you will consider educating your parents and educating your educators on really what is ADHD. Learn what executive functioning is learn how to support students self-regulation and working memory skills. And you are going to see an outcome of your investment of time and money that is the most important thing, is gonna make a difference in the children's lives because they're gonna be happy and they're going to have the skills to perform on tasks that they're obligated to do and those that they just love doing. So I want to thank everybody for joining us today. And we hope that you will like and subscribe and share because it's great information here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast, where school leaders, educators, and parents meet on behalf of children who struggle with learning. To bring workshops to your school or organization, contact Child Behavior Consulting and get started with resources available at childbehaviorconsulting.com, Amazon, and teachespayteachers.com for ready-to-use resources and children's books. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to review, subscribe, share, and give us a shout out on social media.